If today is your first Sunday worshiping with you, let me tell you a little bit about our methodology. We typically preach every Sunday morning through New Testament books, consecutive exposition. And so that's what we're doing today is we continue our exposition of the book of 1 Peter. And then Lord's Day evenings, we usually, although not always, but usually give ourselves to preaching through Old Testament books. And tonight we'll be preaching through, continuing our exposition of the book of Joshua. But I will tell you that today, whether it be in the morning exposition or the evening, both of these are particularly difficult texts. Both of these contain meat for grown-ups, not necessarily just milk for babes. And so you will have to work to understand. You'll even hear some things that sound perhaps even unfamiliar. I will say that I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon on this text. And I'm fairly sure I've never heard a sermon on the text we'll be looking at tonight. And so let me encourage you to roll up your sleeves, have your copy of God's Word open and at the ready as we try to dig deep into this text. On several occasions, we've seen in our exposition of 1 Peter that Peter's teaching method, his pedagogical method, is repetition. And today we'll see this once again. If you'll just look backwards to 1 Peter 2, as you have a finger in 1 Peter 4, just look backwards to 1 Peter 2. There we saw that Peter taught that the good works of believers silence the detracting critics of Christianity. Let me say that again because that's a mouthful. Peter taught in 1 Peter 2 that the good works of believers are what silences the detracting critics of Christianity. Look at 1 Peter 2 verse 12 and following. Peter says, to have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, here it is again, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, I hope you'll hold that in abeyance and remember that as we work our way through this very difficult text that Peter has already talked about good works and says they have this function. They serve as an apologetic for the legitimacy and the power of Christianity, and they are to close the mouths of critics. Today, Peter is going to add to that and tell you that good works have another function. The good works are the mandated response in the life of the believer to trials and suffering. Did you hear that? That God's mandated response as we go through judgments, afflictions, trials, and suffering are to answer those by good works. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to, to guide us into all truth as he has promised to do, and so let's seek that now. Our Father, we recognize the great privilege we have in this moment to hold in our very hands your word, your exact truth. Let us never take that lightly or for granted. Keep us from desiring any other authority than that which has been perfectly revealed. And so now we ask that you would send the blessed Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our reminder, and our convictor. Give us grace to be more than just passive hearers of the word, but enable us to purpose and then to be effectual doers of this word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Look carefully at 1 Peter 4, verse 17, where at the beginning of our context, Peter makes the assertion, a very simple one, perhaps you've heard it, but we're going to explain what it means, that God's judgment always begins with the church. When Peter was writing this epistle, the Christian church was undergoing several trials. The elect were suffering. Those people whom Peter earlier in his book in 1 Peter 2 called a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, are about to experience an even fiercer persecution. Peter Peter teaches the largely Gentile church about God's order. Stare at it there in verse 17. Perhaps you've never considered this. God's usual method of providence is this. When God is going to bring a great judgment upon a nation, a city, a, a people, he generally begins with his own. Look at those words in verse 17. Time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Peter knew this principle well because he was deeply steeped in the Old Testament. That was Peter's Bible, remember? That's all he had. And so this principle of God beginning, when he's going to bring a judgment upon a nation or affliction or trial, he begins with his own elect in that place. And especially one of the predominant themes of the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, is repeatedly God tells his people he's about to bring judgment, but especially upon his people. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Jerusalem, meaning he's starting with his own people, then he'll punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. The Lord says the same thing through Jeremiah when he says, Behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name, the city of Jerusalem. The Lord begins. He starts with judgment in his own people. Or in Ezekiel chapter 9, again, notice the prophets who, who speak most clearly to God's ways of judgment. The Lord says in Ezekiel 9 that he's going to begin at my sanctuary with judgment. Think of how severely the Lord chastised his people during the time of the prophets. He chastised them so heavily that he sent pagan nations, Assyria and Babylon, to conquer them and forcibly remove them from their homeland and take them into exile. And as Peter's writing now, a time of severe trial for the church, the household of God is now at hand. This was foretold as well by Jesus when he said in Matthew 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation, they will kill you, you'll be hated by all nations for my sake. These judgments will begin. Look at verse 17, in case you think I'm over-dramatizing. Look at verse 17, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. This is God's normal providential order. Whenever he's going to bring an affliction, he starts with his own people, the purification of his own people. Now I have to say, even though judgment begins with his house and his family, the Lord very soon is done with that. Trials and corrections don't last long. The troubles of believers then and now are brief and light compared to what awaits the wicked 
In fact, Peter brings that up. Look at verse 17. And he asks a rhetorical question, and he's going to say something like this again in verse 18. He says, what shall the end be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a rhetorical question because you know. Look at verse 17. When Peter asks the question, what shall the end be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I'll spell that out in just a moment, what the end is for those who do not obey the gospel of God. But there's a principle, a profound principle here, that God brings judgment upon his elect. I said last week that perhaps the most nefarious thing happening in the kingdom of God now is the prosperity gospel that says true believers will always be known by this. They'll be healthy and wealthy and they'll, they'll not have a moment's trouble in this life and then they'll die fat and happy in their sleep which of course is completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. Notice what verse 17 says. And this simply adds to the principle that's frequently taught us, that the best of God's servants, his own household, has so much sin in them that it must be addressed by a righteous God. Remember the assertion of our shorter catechism, question 82, we all sin daily in word, thought, and deed. And so it's necessary that God should correct and chasten the church with his judgments. Judgments begin with the house of God. But we have to say quickly about these judgments. Those who are the family of God have their worst things in this life. Their worst condition is tolerable and will soon be over. But the principle is being stated here for us. God will chastise every single believer. If this is news to you, then I would urge you to read your Bible more carefully. God will chastise every single believer. And this chastisement, this judgment that Peter speaks of, is always for your growth in grace and your sanctification. Just so that you can see it with your own eyes, keep your finger here and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Well, the author of Hebrews speaks to this in some depth because this issue of judgment upon the household of God, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, yeah, this happens to every single believer as individuals and collectively. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5. The writer of Hebrews says, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, my sons do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now notice, these fatherly judgments are always, look at Hebrews 12 verse 11, are always, every time, 
always with the intention of bringing forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The Father's chastisement that some of you may be knowing now, certainly the entire church is beginning to go through this in the United States as the church is being humbled and marginalized more and more rapidly. The Father's chastening, consisting of trials, is not punishment for your sins. Jesus bore your punishment fully on the cross. When he cried out, it is finished, he meant that he'd made full payment for your sins. The difference between fatherly chastisement, between temporal judgments, and judicial wrath, the difference is night and day. And you do a great disservice to your heavenly father if in the midst of a trial you say, God is punishing me for my sins. The worst I've ever heard of this is the person who several years ago walked in the front door of the narthex and they said, I'm late because God was punishing me for my sins. My car didn't start today. And I thought, that's the weakest I've ever heard. I have to remember that. God does not punish his children. He punished your substitute. But he certainly chastises his children. Because as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, every good father chastises his sons. Paul says the same thing when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And so the first premise you're to learn, and this is a deep principle, it's meat. For grown-ups, it's when God is going to judge, look at verse 17, he always starts with the church. He always begins with his elect. But then notice the counterpart to that. Look at the end of verse 17. But what will be the end? Oh, if we're saying the beginning, God starts with the church, here's the end of judgment. What will be the end? of those who do not obey the gospel of God. If judgment begins with believers, it ends with unbelievers. If God will afflict his own sons and daughters with chastening, what will he do with his enemies? The same thing is being stated in verse 18. And notice how Peter does this. He does it by a series of rhetorical questions. If you don't know what a rhetorical question is, it's one who the answer is so obvious you don't have to say it. So look at verse 18. Peter asks another rhetorical question. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, here it comes, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? It's the second one. He's just asked one in verse 17. What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Roll up your sleeves here with me. Peter's talking about people who don't obey the gospel of God. We're used to hearing about men who don't believe the gospel of God. But look at the operative verb. Here Peter speaks of men not obeying the gospel. So be very specific with me. What are the gospel imperatives that the lost man does not obey? Isn't that what's being stated? Look at verse 17. Peter says... What will be the end of those who don't obey the gospel of God? Well, here it comes. The reprobate, the lost man, disobediently refuses the commands to repent and believe. 
This was the first command given by Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry in Mark chapter 1. When we were told in Mark 1, 14 and 15 that Jesus went forth proclaiming, repent and believe the gospel. That's the imperative that the unbeliever refuses to obey. He refuses to repent. He refuses to believe. What do we mean by repentance? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're questioning, you're thinking about the claims of Christ, you're thinking, what is it that he's commanding me to do? He's commanding you to repent. Repentance, so that there's no mistaking what I mean. Repentance begins with a knowledge of sin, where the sinner sees his words and deeds and thoughts for what they are, sin. The sinner stops renaming it and saying it's bad habits, it's family inheritance, and he says, I agree with God. My thoughts, words, and deeds are sin. And indeed, it moves from having a knowledge of sin to naming the sin. Not just a glib, oh, forgive us of our many sins, amen. But the man who God is saving comes face to face with his transgression and names them. He does as Paul does in 1 Timothy 1 when Paul says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and an insolent man. Paul is doing what every repenting man does. He named his sin. I will tell you some of the most difficult conversations I've ever had when I'm evangelizing someone and I'll say, do you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior? Oh, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. And I'll say, which kind of sinner are you? Are you the idolater type or the lusting type? Are you the lying type or the blasphemous type? Oh, I'm, I'm not any of those. You know that God is saving a man when he will say with Paul, I'm an insolent man. I'm a liar. I'm a persecutor. Then that sin, that, that, that repentance, it goes deeper. It begins with the knowledge of sin. It moves to the naming of sin. And then it works sorrow for sin. It produces what? David writes of in Psalm 51, a broken spirit and heart where a man is devastated over his own sin. And then it moves to a turning away from sin. The word that's often translated repentance in the New Testament is the Greek word metanoia, which means doing a 180. I was headed in this direction. I've changed my mind about sin and I'm going to turn and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Paul, once again, speaks to the Thessalonian church about their repentance when he says, you turned, you turned from idols to serve the living God. And then finally, true repentance, genuine repentance, shows itself in a break with sin. True repentance forsakes sin. This is what Solomon is writing about in Proverbs 28 when he says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, will find compassion. That's the first gospel imperative that the lost man doesn't obey. Look at verse 17 of our text again. Peter asks, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? The first gospel imperative they refuse to obey is they will not repent. The second gospel imperative that the lost man will not obey he will not believe. When we speak of belief, we're talking about saving faith. 
There's not one way of salvation for the rich and another for the poor, not one way for Democrats and another for Republicans, not one way for the educated and another way for the illiterate. God is not a respecter of persons, but he makes the free offer of salvation to anyone who will place their trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1, the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You remember that Peter, the same Peter who's our author here, when he was preaching to Cornelius the Gentile in Cornelius' house in Acts 10, he said, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will receive remission of sins. You know, when we think of the gospel imperative that the lost man will not obey, we said he will not repent, and he will not believe, but let me be more specific, he will not believe in Jesus because saving faith always has the exact proper object. Saving faith is in Christ. Don't be that person who suffers from being nebulous. I believe. Believe what? Oh, I don't know. I just, I just am a believing sort of guy. Saving faith is always and only in Christ alone. That's why Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. You remember what Paul said to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 who asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul specifically said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Saving faith is specifically in the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving faith is in the one who's both God and man. Saving faith is in the person who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, and rose on the third day. Is it absolutely necessary that you get the object of faith right? Yes. Well, Carl, what about faith in someone else? What about really sincere faith in someone else? What about faith in a Jesus who's not God and man? The apostles made that clear in Acts 4 when they said, There is salvation in no other. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That's why Jesus said in John 14, the night before he went to the cross, no one comes to the Father but through me. Look back at our text, verse 17. Peter says, what shall be the end? He's asking a rhetorical question, and you know the answer. What shall be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? This is the person who, who will not obey the gospel imperatives. They will not repent. They will not believe. Who can express? Look at what Peter's saying in verse 17. He's saying, who can express or say how dreadful that person's end shall be? Scripture repeatedly tells us of the wrath of God that awaits those who disobey the gospel imperatives. John writes in Revelation 21, they shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone forever. Now Peter heard Jesus teach on the subject of eternal punishment with frequency. You do know that Jesus had more to say about hell than heaven. You do know that Jesus had more to say about hell than anyone else in the Bible. You do know that Jesus said more about hell than all other biblical writers combined. Always with the descriptor, the descriptor of burning. Always. 
And so Jesus uses some of these phrases. Unquenchable fire, eternal fire, and the most used term used by Jesus, a furnace of fire. It's impossible for me this morning to exaggerate the torment of the punishment that awaits those who disobey the gospel. It will be eternal in duration, Jesus says so in Matthew 25, which means there's no relief. God's justice will never be satisfied. There's no half point of eternity. It will always be just beginning. It will be a place of complete despair and no hope. It will be a place of intense and painful torment. You remember the rich man after he dies and is in hell in Luke chapter 16. He shrieks and says to Father Abraham, to Father Abraham, I just want one drop of water because I'm in torment. Peter goes on in our text and he makes an astounding claim. Look back to our text in 1 Peter 4 verse 18. He says, the righteous are scarcely saved. The righteous are scarcely saved. I want to try to get at what I think Peter is saying. Peter was there that day, front and center, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus say the following words. Listen carefully. And this obviously made a huge impression on Peter. When Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult. Difficult is the way that leads to life, and few there are who find it. Jesus affirmed, and Peter heard this. This this had such a grip on Peter. Jesus affirmed that the only men who are truly converted are those who have entered the gate. Of course, you know what the gate is. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said the only people who are saved are those who have entered the gate by biblical conversion meaning saving faith in Jesus alone and repentance from sin. And they have committed themselves to walking on the narrow way in sanctification. After a man enters at the gate, which means he's had heart dealings with the one who said, I am the door, he then walks on the narrow way and stays on the narrow way. And when Peter looks at that, that it's a narrow door to walk through, Jesus alone, It's a narrow path to stay on, the path of gospel holiness and gospel obedience. Gospel holiness, that way, is not the following of man-made regulations. If you think that gospel holiness consists of don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, that's not gospel holiness. True holiness is concerned with the heart, which works its way out into the activities of a man. True holiness hungers and thirsts for righteousness and conformity to the character of God. Gospel holiness is willing to take drastic measures day by day against heart sins, such as lust and covetousness, not just externals. Gospel holiness is busy about mortifying sin, putting to death pride and lies. Are you on the narrow way? Do you love holiness from the heart? It's a difficult way. It's a narrow way. It's not just gospel holiness, it's gospel obedience, a 
a delight in obeying God's moral law that flows out of gratitude for free grace received. Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? At the gate, as a man enters and goes through that narrow gate, the law of God is written on the heart of the new believer, we're told in Jeremiah 31. And they begin to respond day by day, as the psalmist did in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. The obedience of those who have entered the narrow gate and are walking on the narrow way is a careful obedience. The idea that the gospel, obeying the gospel, coming through that gate by repentance and belief, has somehow lessened the demands for obedience is foreign to the word of God. The gospel actually intensifies the demand. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Jesus says at the last judgment there will be plenty who said, But I came through the gate. Jesus will say, No, you didn't. If you came through the gate, you would walk in the way and give yourself to joyful obedience. Gospel holiness, gospel obedience is the practice of those on the narrow way. That's why Peter says, the righteous one is scarcely saved. Now, everything I've been saying to you up until this moment has been a huge, colossal setup for verse 19. I hope you'll look at it. Because Peter is speaking, don't lose focus, keep your eye on the ball. Peter has been speaking to suffering Christians. That's his audience. He's speaking to them to give them wise counsel, and he tells them two imminent truths in verse 19. The first is, he's saying to believers who are suffering, who are getting ready to go through that judgment, which, remember, begins at the household of God. Peter says in verse 19, recognize that your suffering is according to the will of God. This is a huge principle that the believer must understand. And who better to understand than this, this than sovereignty people, people who believe and confess. Our children learn it in catechids, who believe and confess that whatsoever comes to pass has been ordained by God. And so look at these words in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer, and Peter adds, oh, by the way, you're suffering according to the will of God. If you're suffering now, if we are going through the judgments of God, it's not a surprise or bad karma. The scripture, in fact, repeatedly teaches the sovereignty of God over hardships. Remember what the Lord said to Moses when he was complaining? He said, when Moses said, you know, my tongue, it doesn't work so well. The Lord said, well, who do you think makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Is it not I, says the Lord? Or remember what the Lord says to Isaiah in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there's no other. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Joseph knew this. When he'd been put in a huge trial, his brothers had sold him into slavery. He was down in Egypt for over 20 years. And when his brothers finally come in dread, fear to apologize, Joseph stops them and says, shh. You meant it for evil, but God sovereignly overruled it for good. So you and I, knowing that our trials and suffering, the first bit of 
pastoral wisdom Peter gives us is recognize that your suffering is according to the will of God. That's what he says in verse 19. But secondly, knowing that suffering and trials come from the hand of God, what should the Christian sufferer do? Look at verse 19. Peter says you should commit your soul to God in doing good. Now, at this point, somebody's going to say, Carl, this is so unpastoral of you. Carl, you shouldn't say things like this. I can't tell you how many people who I've seen who, when they go through a trial, an affliction, they curl up in a ball and they disappear. They go into depression and melancholy. They stare at their belly button. That's their response. Peter, because of the teaching of the Holy Spirit, has profound wisdom. And Peter says, believer, when you are suffering, when you're going through the, what seems like a horrible judgment, and by the way, why does it have to begin with the household of God? When you're going through that judgment, turn outward. Face and begin to focus on good works. You can obsess and fixate on your sad situation, or you can do what Peter apostolically commands. You can look outward, focus on ministering to others, and you can imitate our Lord Jesus, who we are told in Acts 10.38, went about doing good everywhere. Now, I want you to look at the end of verse 19. This is a command. It's a command. Peter gives to those who are suffering. Look at verse 19. It's no mystery who Peter's giving the command to. In verse 19, he's just said, it's those who are suffering. And by the way, their suffering is according to the will of God. Peter says, you commit your soul to doing good. Did the early church hear and implement Peter's words, or did they just say, no, who can turn their face outward when they're suffering? Who can turn and instead of thinking about themselves and their pain and their sadness, who, who has the time to do good to others? Did the early church hear Peter? In Acts chapter 6, we see the creation of an ecclesiastical ordained office, the deacon, who in the midst of horrific persecution, both from Rome and from Judaism, they were the full-time doers of good works with their first priority, caring for the poor and the widows of the church. Or think of Tertullian, who wrote in the second century, an early North African church father, who wrote to the Roman emperor then, who was terrifying, persecuting the Christian church. Tertullian wrote his famous apology and informed him that the church was active in caring for widows, orphans, the physically disabled, and prisoners who were incarcerated for their Christian faith. Tertullian also told the emperor that believers regularly provided burial for the poor for free. And then there was that first historic council of the church, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, where the church, again in the midst of horrific persecution and suffering, the first order of business at the Council of Nicaea was to order that a hospital be established in every major city to care for the poor, the widow, and the stranger. 
Even today, when you go into any city of any size, the hospitals are often Baptist Hospital, Presbyterian Hospital, Methodist Hospital, St. Francis. Because Christian churches used to know that good works of mercy and compassion are their calling. In 400 AD, Basil of Caesarea and John Chrysostom of Constantinople ordered the widespread establishment of orphanages all over Asia Minor by churches. The tradition continues to this day. Some of the most notable Calvinists that you know of, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, poured their life and their fortune into establishing orphanages. This explains our deep, our ongoing, our compassionate support of Calvary Home for Children. And so when Peter writes and says, here is what to do since judgment is beginning at the household of God. Since you are suffering, look at the end of verse 19. I'm not going to let you escape from this, and the Holy Spirit is certainly not going to let you escape. Get busy in tangible good works. Now, of course, anybody who wants to argue and say, well, Carl, we're not saved by works. Of course we're not. Nobody's stating that. Good works are not the reason for our salvation. We're saved apart from, good, from works. Good works, though, are the evidence of your salvation. Good works are not the root of your salvation. They're the fruit. Good works bring glory to God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And now we have even more to say about good works. Look at verse 19. Good works are the mandated apostolic response to suffering. By doing good works, you'll be conformed to the image of Christ. You'll be imitating him, which is what God has foreordained, foreordained for each and every believer. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. So by way of application, I'm going to remind you now, and I'm giving you license to remind one another and remind me. The next time you realize that you're being chastised by God, the next time you're in the crucible of his judgment, the biblically mandated response is to commit yourself to God's sovereign person and plan. Commit, him, commit to him as your creator, Peter says, and then get busy in good works. Whether that means protecting the unborn, caring for the sick and the poor, ministering to orphans, visiting prisoners, taking a meal. Then, my friend, then, my friend, you will hear on the last day those glorious words of Jesus. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Enter into my rest, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, through your apostle Peter, you have said, though we have not seen you, we love you and greatly rejoice with inexpressible joy in the salvation you've given us. And so give us now grace to prepare and persevere until the day we come face to face with you. Especially enable us to obey this command, to be busy about doing good even in the day of our trial and suffering. We pray in the name.